Welcome to the Be Real podcast. I am your host, Diana Gasparoni. I am a visionary psychotherapist, CEO, and founder of Be Well Psychotherapy and Be Her programs. Along with my amazing co-hosts, Anisha Salisbury and Divya Robin, each week we will talk about the journey of mental health wellness. We will talk about why your mental health is just as important as your physical health and the connection that being mentally well has on all areas of your life. We will be interviewing psychotherapists from various disciplines and schools of thought, doctors from both Eastern and Western disciplines, authors, change makers, thought leaders, and more. Our mission is to bring you information that is both thought-provoking and encourages you to look closer at your mental and emotional well-being. We will give you tips and insights to taking the next steps, or if you have already gotten in the door, to go deeper. Each week, we are going to have real conversations, helping you work through your mental wellness questions, reminding you that you are not alone. Mental health is my passion. I practice what I preach. I know that the struggle is real. It is our mission to touch as many souls as we can with this content, leading you to a place of mental clarity and well-being. So for the next hour, let's work together and look underneath the surface and get real. Hey, hey, welcome back to Be Real, Anisha. Hi, Diana. Hello, hello, hello happy to be here today. I'm feeling good. I don't know. This is like week 10 of the shutdown slash pandemic. And um, I have to say it's getting better. Is it's, it? It's getting better. I'm no longer in shock. I'm definitely have dealt with a bit of despair, but I'm on a road to acceptance. So um, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm accepting that my summer will look different from any other summer that I've had. And that travel plans might not be in the cards, but there are some other things that I can do. So um, I'm excited about that. Well, I'm going to party on your acceptance because I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> not even close. So we have a friend of yours on today, don't we? Well, actually, it's a friend of my husband's and, and his fraternity brother. So I am super excited about that. Um, yeah. You know, he knows that I'm doing the podcast. He was like, oh, you have to have Dr. Lindsay on. I was like, yeah, Dr. Lindsay is pretty impressive. <laughs> so I should have Dr. Lindsay on. <laughs> I know. I Googled him. <laughs> and I have to say, I was like, oh, okay. Let me just sit with this for a minute. Doc- Dr. Lindsay has earned that doctor, <laughs> the doctor in front of his name, that PhD. He is busy, 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 he busy. Is very busy. Um, so I guess I should probably go ahead and introduce him. Um, yeah, I mean, you can. You ready to introduce him? You ready? Like, have we all, we checked in, we're all set. We're like ready to hop right in there. I mean, oh, we should, we have a disclaimer. We do, um, in today's episode, uh, we do mention adolescent suicide. So I think that that uh, people should have, we don't get too deep into it, but we do talk about it a little bit. Just know that it's going to come up when you're listening. And it is something that we did want to bring attention to, especially because it is, it needs the attention and it needs, uh, we should all be aware that this is an ongoing issue, most specifically in more so in the black and Latino communities. And that's, uh, Dr. Lindsay does a lot of his research in that area. So I am uh, just giving a little disclaimer. I appreciate the disclaimer. I think it's super important because it's something that's not talked about. I will say as an African-American woman, I think the thought is that suicide is not something that we do when I say we, meaning black people or Latinos, and that is very untrue. So I think that that's why it's so important that we have this conversation. 
so people have an understanding that this is something that is going on in the Black and Latino community. There needs to be a light shined on it. We need to figure out like how we can shine that light and how these kids can get the help that they need. So let's uh, let's hear a little bit about Dr. Lindsay. Oh, here Oof. we go. So Dr. Lindsay is the executive director of NYU Silver's Mixed Silver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research, and is the school's Constance and Martin Silver Professor of Poverty Studies. He is a child and adolescent mental health service researcher. Um, his research is currently funded by, by NIMH, addressing depression and suicide risk among Black adolescents, and the Robin Hood Foundation and the Annie E. Casey Foundation, delivering an innovative combination of interventions aimed at decreasing PTSD and depression and improving positive parenting skills among child welfare-involved mothers with trauma-related disorders. So I have to say, guys, that I didn't want to, like, I, we would take probably a whole hour if I gave this guy's, like, complete bio, right? So I just need to let you guys know, if you Google him, you will find out about all the amazing work that he is doing. So um, I just wanted to give you guys, like, a brief snapshot. You can definitely Google him and find out so much more. And also, you'll find out so much more about him today. I'm ready. You ready, Diana? I'm ready. I wish he had been a professor at NYU and I was there. That's all I can say. So. <laughs> And uh, yes, and as you're listening and we go through the episode, just know that we're going to bring Dr. Lindsay back because we had such a good time with him and we only scratched the surface on the work that he's doing. So maybe we'll read the second half of his bio when he comes back <laughs> the second time. <laughs> maybe we'll have to have one a third time, but there you go. Everybody sit back, have a listen and uh, let us know how you, what you think. All right, let's do it. As you know, I am a huge supporter of therapy, and if there was ever a time to prioritize your mental well-being, it's now. As the founder of Be Well Psychotherapy, I am proud to announce my team is leading the way in online therapy. Be Well is based in New York City, and we were one of the first practices to pivot to online therapy with the outbreak of COVID-19. With over 15 licensed therapists, Be Well offers a variety of methodologies and approaches so you can select a therapist that is a good fit for you. We help individuals of all ages, including kids, teens, couples, and wait for it, we even have online group therapy. There is no need to struggle alone with feelings of depression, anxiety, isolation, grief, or loss. To learn more, visit BeWellPsychotherapy.com or text BeWell, that's one word, to 484848 to get connected with a therapist today. Again, that's BeWellPsychotherapy.com or text BeWell, one word, B-E-W-E-L-L to 484848 to get connected to a therapist today. And now back to our amazing show. Hey, 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 guys. We are back with Be Real. Um, I am super excited today uh, for our guest, um, Dr. Michael Lindsay. He is a scholar in child and adolescent mental health, a thought leader, a researcher, a professor. And I guess the one that really warms my heart is he is a fellow social worker. So not only do you like study the pop this population, but you've actually been in the trenches with kids, you know, earlier in your career. So I'm gathering that it makes your work even more rich. So we are so excited to have you here today. So thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Why don't we take a minute to kind of tell our listeners a little bit about you and where you're currently focus focusing your research, excuse me. I'm the executive director 
of the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at NYU. McSilver is focused on addressing the root causes and consequences of poverty through research, research that is applied, action-oriented toward the goal of informing policy. I'm really excited about the work that I do at McSilver. Um, I have a couple of lines of research. As you described, I am a child and adolescent mental health intervention and services researcher. I am I'm really focused on what's happening with youth um, and how we can address their mental health issues, especially in the context of school environments. And so, you know, we like to provide those services and do the intervention work in schools. Um, as we know, schools are now the largest provider of mental health services to kids in the United States. So I take great pride in the opportunity to be able to address uh, kids' mental health issues in schools. And then I also have another intervention study that I lead focused on moms who have PTSD and who have come into contact with child welfare prevention services. And what we do is uh, provide uh, mental health interventions and supports to those moms in the child welfare prevention service agencies. Um, and the goal is to uh, address their mental health issues that might come into uh, conflict with their parenting. Uh, the name of the program and intervention that we provide is called Safe Mothers, Safe Children. And so we believe that if mothers are safe and have been able to address their emotional um, and psychological needs, that they're going to be uh, stronger uh, parents to their children. And so uh, we've been doing that work in New York City Child Welfare Prevention Service Agency. I love everything that you're doing, Dr. Lindsay. That's amazing. In the early parts of my career, when I first started, was a sexual health educator in a high school and also in a middle school and have run groups with teenagers ever since. And I'm so passionate about mental health for teenagers. So, and being having that intervention in schools where kids can learn how to take care of themselves, express themselves, and find other ways to be safe within their own minds is so important to me. So I'm super excited to hear everything that you have to say today. So welcome. Thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, you know, to to that end, I mean, I think it's so important to do the work in schools because obviously schools are the place and the context for um, kids' academic and social enrichment. And if they are challenged by mental health issues that conflict with their ability to learn, to concentrate and focus, uh, to be productive citizens in the schools, then, um, you know, their long-term success is challenged, particularly for kids who are uh, dealing with matters of uh, poverty, including food insecurity, housing instability, and that sort of thing, right? You know, although there are structural factors that might be related to those issues, you know, education does provide kids the opportunity to to emerge from those situations and and break the cycles of you know generational uh, poverty and that sort of thing. And so, I think it's so important to provide services in school so that kids are able to best benefit from what uh, the educational environment has to offer. Yes. So that I'm going to jump right in then, because right now, as we all know, we have launched a podcast in a pandemic. So we do see a 
not that we've taken education away, but we've taken away socialization, peer groups, peer contact, which is also important for our adolescents, especially it is so important. It's so important for everybody, but most specifically for adolescents. So what is your biggest concern, Dr. Lindsay, right now for young people during this time of isolation in regards to the long-term effects on their mental health? Well, you know, it's interesting in that um, we've been mandated to be socially distant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one might infer then that social distance means disconnection. And what I worry about is that for kids and for adults, you know, no matter what age you are, if you are disconnected from social support and things that, you know, sort of enrich your life in meaningful ways, then it has a direct consequence on your mental health. And so the thing that I worry then is about the matter of, you know, kids being disconnected and socially isolated from their supports, from the academic environment as they know it. Um, And sometimes, you know, kids, I mean, most New Yorkers live in apartments, (laughs) right? you know, and if it's, (laughs) and if it's like a, a small apartment where, there's not enough room to sort of, you know, be able to hold your therapy sessions. For example, if you're talking to your therapist um, and, you know, it should be a place of privacy and, and being able to have that, you know, intimate and authentic discussion. If you can't have that because, you know, you share a room with a family member and that's challenged, right? You're disconnected from your, your mental health or, you know, just in other ways. I mean, I, I also worry about the technology divide and how some families are struggling to to be connected to the very thing that's going to you know be most connected in this space to their their academic uh, success. Uh, obviously, I worry also about trauma. You know, the loss of of life, um, seeing the the news and the reports of death. Uh, and the numbers are continuing to, uh, you know, come at us in, in, in incredible ways, you know, and I think that how kids uh, reconcile with that and, and, and struggle through it is definitely a concern that I have um, because at the end of the day, I mean, we're all experiencing trauma. I appreciate you calling it trauma because I think that we don't name it, which is a, a huge problem. And I think especially in the black community, sometimes we don't name it. And so for you to say that, yes, all of the loss that we're experiencing, especially for children, how hard it is. Um, I think about, I have a friend, her son is six years old. You know, he has totally changed, right? Like I've noticed a change in his attitude, the way he talks to me, he just seems so unhappy, right? Because he hasn't been able to see his friends. So every day I go for a walk and I, um, I call her and I say, Hey, like, He can come out for a walk with me or you can come out for a walk with me because he just needs to get out. But I've seen that um, that joy just kind of leave him. Mm -hmm. Right. Because he's not able to be social. Right. School is your most important, important social arena. And what happens when you don't have that? Like not all kids are okay with the Skype calls. Right. You know, they're trying their best. And you, like you said, social distancing, it should be physical distancing, right? Because mm-hmm. really, we should still try and be as social as we possibly can. But yeah. kids who can't, you know, just go out and play with friends, mm-hmm. like how hard that is. So I, I just think about, you know, social supports 
and, you know, close friendships is the thing that, you know, definitely deters people from having any type of mental health issues. So what happens when, um, you know, we kind of take that away? Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. It's so traumatizing and, um, and it's hard to know exactly how the trauma will manifest for kids um, in terms of whether it shows up through their behaviors or um, through their academic um, success or not. Uh, you just don't know how it's going to, to show up. And so, you know, I, I, I do worry about how kids are going to, what's going to happen with them, how, how are kids going to process um, all of this. And, you know, one of the things that I have been studying over the past couple of years is the rising rate of suicide uh, among um, subgroups of adolescents in the United States, particularly black adolescents. Um, what we know about suicide is that it is the second leading cause of death among adolescents aged 12 to 18 years old. And in the last uh, 20 plus years or so, we've been seeing unfortunately, a rising rate in suicide attempts among black youth, while the rates for other groups have actually decreased over that span of time. And so now you introduce something like COVID-19. And I just, you know, worry and, 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 and wonder about how kids are processing and, and dealing with the trauma, uh, depression or anxiety that they might be experiencing related to the fact that their lives have dramatically changed and changed out of nowhere, right? Like there's not something you were prepared for. And so um, I just, I, I worry about that. And I, and to that end, you know, if we are moving back to um, an in-person, you know, sort of context and for kids, if they're going back to schools, I, I hope that schools are prepared to take on um, and responsibility associated with meeting the needs of kids um, in terms of their emotional and psychological well-being because you know obviously they're going to be impacted by so much and so we have to be prepared for that uh do you think we'll see a spike in suicide as a result of the trauma in the coming months well uh, obviously my hope is that we don't of course uh, at the same time, as I've been studying the rates of suicide attempts going up over, as I mentioned, the last 20 years, um, there was a decrease um, from, I want to say, 2015 to 2017. You know, I hope that that, you know, trend, you know, continues on a downward uh, trajectory. But when you uh, have a, tra a, tra a traumatizing event like COVID happened, you know, trauma is associated with, you know, mental health outcomes that are harmful um, or that really places individuals in a vulnerable state. And so then while I hope that we do not see a spike in suicide, um, I would not be surprised and somewhat at to see it um, because it you can't ignore the 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 carnage that uh, COVID nineteen will have and continue to have on on our lives and and our well being. Thank you for being so candid. It is uh, it's hard to imagine it when you start to internalize the actual effects that this trauma is going to have on people on 
on specific communities and how it's being, how it is affecting communities and most specifically in the African-American community. I know that Anisha and I recently did an episode about how it, this is disproportionately affecting um, black and Latino communities. And so see talking about the suicide rate and what, where adolescents are, what sort of interventions do you think we could put in place now I'm not sure. I know that we had a program in schools that ended because of as soon as we transitioned over, we we do the work with interns and the interns were were not were told not to continue their field placement. So right. we we stopped. But what we did do, what we which I was really excited to see was that the students were not ready to let go of their therapists. So they actually reached out to their therapists and had sessions with them, which was probably one as a supervisor and somebody who set up a field placement program. One of my proudest moments, the history of my career that, that the students had enough, had enough attachment to their therapist to be like, Hey, I'm going to go outside on the street and I'm going to have a conversation with you because I want to process what's happening. Um, but we had to take those services away. So what kind of services do you think we can do as a community of social workers, as a community of therapists that we can put into place now so that we can just be there for adolescents? Whoa, I could uh, answer <laughs> that question over the next couple of hours. Do we have that much time? Well, I will give you all the time you need, Dr. Lindsay, because I want to be part of the solution. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are a number of things that, we can be doing. And let me just kind of start from the sort of basic human interaction sort of things we can be doing all the way through the more sort of intensive or research informed things that we could be doing. So let me just start at the first part of this, which is in terms of our interactions with kids, um, with each other, I think it's important for us to touch base with with everyone that we come in contact with, particularly our loved ones, around how are we feeling, you know, uh, and being able to process our feelings about everything that is transpiring, um, whether it's related to COVID-19 directly or whether it relates to the disruption in our lives that has taken place. Uh, you know, I think being able to touch base with kids, for example, about how they're feeling, not how they're doing, but how they're feeling is really important so that you begin to give kids and loved ones an opportunity to express it. Otherwise, what might happen is that they might hold it in and not express it. And we know that anything that's held in without the opportunity for expression can ultimately blow up. Right. And so we don't know what that blow up might look like, but it's certainly bound to happen when you don't express things. Um, the other thing that it does then is it gives us an opportunity when we express our feelings to to hear, to touch base and to begin to provide the appropriate support for our loved ones, whether that's connections to therapy or, as we talked about earlier, just connecting in authentic ways, you know, like just because we're sitting beside someone doesn't mean that we're connected. You know, there has to be some engagement that happens. And I think being in touch about the feelings and, and things that are happening in, in all of this space is, is so important. Um, and then the other thing that I, I think is crucial is 
when you talk about interventions, you know, um, we hear a lot in the space of mental health service delivery about being trauma informed. You know, what does that mean, right? Like to be trauma informed. And so I think then that uh, part of it is related to what I was just saying, um, being able to be conversant and to, uh, to process uh, trauma, to identify what trauma looks like and to be able to point to it. Like, I know that that person is experiencing trauma because, you know, I know what trauma looks like. I know the manifestations of it, right? And so how do we then prepare schools uh, and everyone in the school, education providers, uh, uh, administrators, how do we prepare them to understand what trauma looks like, how it affects behaviors, how will it impact the, um, the academic um, opportunities to you know, be successful with respect to academics? So all of that becomes really important. And then uh, I'll finally close with, we know an assortment of evidence-based strategies or evidence-based interventions to target, uh, you know, things like depression, anxiety, trauma, disruptive behaviors. Like there are interventions that are evidence-based in all of those areas. What I worry about is if we see another wave of COVID-19 and we must continue to uh, operate in virtual spaces, I worry about our ability to deliver those evidence-based treatments virtually, right? Not all of those evidence-based programs have been sort of transferred, the, 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 the technology or innovation of it has not been transferred to a virtual platform. And so I worry then that kids may not be connected to the most evidence-based or evidence-informed work if we do not transfer it to a virtual space. I know that was a lot. I told you. I no, no, no. I was the, because I, it was, I, what I was taking in was just that, um, I know that when I, what, that when I have worked with teens in the past, like one of the things like is being in the room with the teenager and letting them be able to get up, walk around, be able to like, and then encourage them to sit back down and be able to, to talk because I know it's very difficult for them, especially if they've suffered trauma to contain it and put it in and be able to put it into words. Like it's not, I was thinking as you were talking about the student that I had worked with years ago, who I use her as an example all the time. She was, she had to, she was assigned to me. She was supposed to come and see me weekly. And she told me that she didn't go to the social workers and that I would have to come and get her. And I was like, yeah, and then I'm not going to do that. So I would sit in my office and she would like walk by and walk by until she was ready. So the contact took like to get her to come and sit with me took about three months, but we allowed that. And so how to have that kind of relationship virtually will, will be a challenge for sure. If the student isn't already engaged with, with the therapist is what I was thinking. So I, I was, I was just feeling what that for all of, all of the kids. I was thinking about the importance of engagement mm -hmm. um, and how hard that can be, especially virtually mm -hmm. um, as a therapist who was doing therapy every day, virtually <laughs> um, just, you know, trying to feel like that to get that feeling that I have when I'm in the room with my clients, it's been so difficult. I'm actually noticing that phone sessions have been easier than video. Um, I think also people have video really? fatigue. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like they're having video fatigue, number one, right? Because if they're on the video all day with either work or school, they're kind of tired of that, right? Like, and it feels like it's just easier for them to just kind of emote and just talk about what's going on when they don't have to see my face right now. Um, I think for me, when I ask my clients, how are you feeling? Right. Everyone says, okay. And I think I'm really saying like, it's okay not to be okay. And I also say like, what does okay look like? Like, help me describe what okay is. Mm-hmm. Right. Because that's the answer that you just give people. And I know that as a therapist, I think that, and when we think about what we can do as social workers, I also think about like parents, it's okay to ask, like, what does that mean that you're okay? Right. Give me more. Yes. Right. We need a context. We need to really understand like what these kids are going through because you can be in a house full of people and be lonely. And so I'm just, you know, I want to to kind of figure out how if we have to continue this virtual thing, maybe it's not about like maybe the video, right? Like what if we just talk to the kids over the phone? And I was thinking, um, the schools, are they still providing social work services, you know, in the way that they were before? Or is this focus really about academics? I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, they are continuing to provide services. So one of our, you know, uh, really staple programs at the McSilver Institute is uh, the Step Up program, which, uh, you know, sort of prepares social workers to go into schools to support kids who are struggling academically, who are not attending school every day, and we provide emotional wellness support um, as well as um, uh, mentorship and other kinds of academic enrichment opportunities. Um, and so we've been able to do that. Talking about you know sort of transferring things to a virtual uh, mm-hmm. space, we've been able to continue our step up programming you know, during COVID and the kids have said to us that it's been really important and an incredible source of help for them um, in terms of processing all that is uh, taking place and, and, and really helping them to, you know, have that stable uh, support system, um, you know, during all of this, right. And, and helping them to get through the academic year uh, as best as they can and prepare for um, the next academic year for those who are not graduating and continuing on with our program. So um, that's really important. And then the other thing that I'll say is this, um, in the school-based uh, study that I uh, sort of started off talking about, we are providing um, a treatment, an evidence-based treatment for depression. And we're in the process of transferring all of that, uh, you know, therapy and the strategies within it uh, to from uh, from in person to the virtual um, space. Another part of that work, though, is related to engagement, mm-hmm. and we're developing um, uh, as we speak uh, some digital tools and opportunities to help us to um, hone in on engagement. Um, how do we address stigma, um, the perceived relevance of treatment, and all of the other factors that get in the way? Uh, or prohibit kids from success and their families from successfully connecting to treatment. And so we were doing that work before COVID started, you know, in terms of developing the digital tools um, related to engagement. But wow, like how incredibly important it's going to be now that we're in this space and 
particularly in light of things moving more to um, uh, to the digital platforms, you know, I think it's important to uh, you know to be focused on how do we engage and what are the ways we can be flexible in terms of how we deliver our um, treatments and services, and then how do we have engaging conversations with kids and their families that helps them to reconcile and address any stigma or other kinds of uh, barriers that might get in the way of their connections to treatment, right? So I think all of that is really important. I'm going to want to take that training uh, <laughs> when, when you're, when it's, uh, when it, when it's all complete. Um, but that also gets us to a very important question because I think that um, as you're talking about engagement and getting in the, but the first step of that now is parents are home with their teenagers or their children all the time. For the most part, we're assuming we're, we're talking about this from a place of that we're hoping that parents are at home working with and that their children are with them, or even that there's one parent in the home or a caregiver while the adolescent is home. What are some of the things we want parents to know right now as far as like looking at their children, uh, observing their behaviors, looking for signs of depression, looking for signs of how the, how COVID is affecting them, other traumas, like what kind of message should we be giving parents? Well, I'll try to be, I'll try to be as <laughs> succinct as possible. That's um, okay. Take your, we can talk it all out. Cause it's like getting, getting teenagers to talk to you as a parent is about how you're feeling, how they're feeling is probably the, some of the hardest hardest work parents have to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I think that um, the first and foremost piece of all this is to recognize that our lives have been seriously disrupted. Mm-hmm. And so when you're in a constant state of influx and there's so much going on around us, it is a challenge to be the person as we have been known to be, right? Like it changes us. And so the expectation then that, you know, kids are not, you know, bothered by this or that they have not changed as a result of this is like, you know, something to jettison as an idea or a notion, right? Like the everyone has been impacted by what's happening. And I think recognition of that, appreciation of that is really important. We talked earlier about checking in with your kids about their feelings. Uh, I like what Anisha said about, um, you know, if they're saying, okay, what does okay look like? Getting them to, you know, uh, imagine that the, the, the canvas is blank and you want to color it as much as possible with expressions of, what's inside uh, coming on to that canvas that they're painting that gives us a portrait of what they're dealing with, how they're feeling, and the whole nine. Um, I think that what we know about depression, anxiety, or trauma um, is that when a person is seriously impaired in any of those areas, it is what it looks like is a change in their functioning. You know, so like, whereas they, they may have been a jovial person, have been not eating or any of those kinds of things, right? That is a change in functioning. That is a, uh, a warning sign that something more serious might be going on. And then I think it's important to engage the kids 
around what's happening uh, to try to get a sense of what it looks like or what it is, and then began to uh, reach out to sources for support. Now, there's a really great hotline. It's uh, 1-888-NYC-WELL. That's 1-888-NYC-WELL. It provides an opportunity for you to talk to a person, a professional in real time, get feedback on what's going on and further direction on whether it's something that warrants connection to a mental health professional. So those are the kind of things I think parents should be concerned about. Obviously, with all this happening, kids may not want to do their work. And that's understandable given what's happening. So relax uh, on the pressure or, you know, giving them a hard time around that and sort of just step back and, and, and really sort of process and try to understand what's going on and determine whether it's related to uh, you know, just normal functioning and anybody would feel that way given the context that we're in or whether it's something to be taken more seriously. Uh, thank you for that phone number. Uh, that is uh, such a good resource and we'll make sure that we put it in the show notes and that we that we put it everywhere because it is an excellent resource. And I think that when parents have know that they have somebody that they can reach out to that can help them either understand what's happening with their child, I was going to say student with their kid, and um, also giving the parent permission in what you just said, that it's okay if they're not doing all their work right now. Because I think that that is something I know at the at the beginning of this, everybody was like, oh, we're going to get our schoolwork done or whatever the case may be. Yeah, and it's like, totally. yeah, mm, well, <laughs> let's just, we'll see. <laughs> just, we'll see about that. And I don't think, I mean, I know Anisha brought up like the video fatigue and all of these things. And like, I don't think we really thought about like what it was like when we took away going from one class to the other and the socialization and what it was going to be like for the students. Um, and although the virtual space is still keeping them engaged, it's the work and the concentration just to be in that space is so much harder than it actually is in school. Because like you can't pass a note to, or like kick your friend under the table and like start talking in a way that you would like you're, you're missing that socialization piece. Um, but the other part that I was thinking about and um, might be how are, and I'm going to say parallel process because that's just sort of what's happening. We have parents are also coping with their own feelings of isolation, depression, anxiety, and how, what kind of conversations can parents have with themselves or with other adults about, or with how not to project what they're feeling onto their kids? Yeah. You know, it's so important to be in touch with what's happening uh, with you and we should do that every day, regardless of whether we're in a pandemic or not, right? Yes. Um, you know, <laughs> one of the things that uh, maybe, I don't know, it's, it's been years, but whenever I get on a flight, I think you all know where I'm going, right? <laughs> yeah. in, terms of, in terms of pre-flight instructions, what are we told to do? Oh, in yep. case of an emergency, secure our mask before helping others. That's right. I love that, right? Because <laughs> I think it's a, a, a wonderful metaphor to reflect on even in this moment. Securing your mask before helping others is like so critical. Um, you cannot be anything or much of anything to your child if you're struggling with your own you know, symptoms of depression, anxiety, uh, trauma. And you could also uh, sort of 
reflect that upon or project that upon your your child because you're depressed and down about it. You know, you could project that out in a sense that makes your child feel the same way, right? Mm-hmm. And so then I think it's important for us to 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 come to grips with our own processing around what's happening and to look at our own selves in terms of like like as I mentioned earlier, is there a, a drastic change in how we're functioning? Are we struggling with getting out of the bed? Uh, do we find ourselves uh, you know, overeating or undereating? Do we find ourselves sleeping more? And I think then that if you want your child to be their optimal best and to be supported uh, around their emotional and psychological health, then you know you have to also be in touch with yours as well. I think it's so important that we do a daily check-in, right, with ourselves and also with our children around how you are feeling. Um, and I think that as a society, I don't know if, you know, we focus as much on feelings, of course, right? It's about what are you doing? You know what I mean? It's just about that whole, like, pressure to be productive. I need to get these 10 things done. It doesn't matter how I feel. You know, the whole put your big girl panties on or man up. You know what I mean? All of those things where (laughs) you're being told not to deal with your emotions and not to deal with your feelings, right? And push through. And so these parents are probably thinking like, you know, I have to push through. The kids have to push through. Like I'll teach them how to do that. And they're just kind of not doing the work to check in. So I think it's so important if parents can kind of add that to the daily regimen in the morning of just checking in with yourself about how you're feeling and then checking in with your child and then managing expectations there. No, that's, that's totally true. I mean, you know, one of the things that I try to do personally uh, when I wake up every day is to, uh, to take stock of how I'm feeling, Um, you know, just processing, you know, what, what is going on inside of me is one of the first things I, I do. Um, you know, because I have to take temperature in terms of like, what do I need to do to get through my morning to get prepared for a strenuous day? You know, so I think that's really important. And uh, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I do a similar thing. I think uh, three therapists in the room were all like, okay, so we've woken <laughs> up this morning, we've checked in our feelings and making sure like to seeing it. But um, the ebb and flow of feelings that I've had most specifically during this uh, COVID period has been fascinating as we've moved into what I'm calling, like we had the tsunami of moving, of coming home and starting working at home and schooling at home and all of those things. And now we're starting a new season and I'm calling it like the mini tidal wave of feelings. Cause I noticed that like, as we were moving into a new season, I'm having, and I've seen it in my, in people that I work with too. Like there's another wave of like sadness or frustration or anxiety. And um, I've been thinking about it in regards to today's conversation in that we have a, we're set up for another season of disappointment. And so how are we helping? uh, What kind of messaging can we bring to most specifically adolescents and their parents? Because like, this is when we get to run free in the streets, but no (laughs) <laughs> like this is the summer, yeah. summer right? Yeah. Like summer is like, gone. summer is going to be different. Well, yeah. it's, it's here. It's, it's here, here. <laughs> but we're, we're going to, we're going to be looking at it in a different lens and how, how to, how to keep, keep people 
especially kids in the city, right? Like I, I just like when kids are in the city and they have like the resources, like the pools are going to be taken away. There's, you can't go to the city pools. You can't, the city beaches are taking, taken away. Like what the apartments are small, like, and how, how are, how are we going to connect? How do we stay connected? And it's also harder to get kids engaged in treatment in the summer for sure. Yeah, no question. Um, you know, the, the, the challenge with all of this too, is that, you know, the information that we're receiving about COVID-19 and all of its implications are somewhat changing by the day. Right. And so we don't really know what to uh, expect or to anticipate. Uh, yet, you know, there are things that are emerging in terms of new details every day. Uh, it's hard to know. But I think the things that we've talked about today are really core issues that are mainstays, if you will, throughout this whole process, right? In terms of the process of recovery, the mm-hmm. process of going through it, you know, you know, checking in with your feelings, checking in with, uh, first and foremost, putting your mask on before helping others, uh, checking in with your children about how they're feeling and, and really helping them to sort of process this and talk about it in ways that... Um, you know, you can explain and help them through it. As I've been saying in other, you know, interviews and stuff I've done, that we don't want the news or the media to, you know, sort of be educating our children on what's happening, right? Like, we don't want that to happen in isolation of our work as parents to, you know, sort of help kids process um, things that are happening, any confusion they might have. Um, you know, we want to be there and 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 help shepherd that process for them. I love that we're not using the news as tools for parenting, <laughs> so that we can take the kids away from the tele. Uh, just because what we're all going to listen to different news and come up with our own idea. I think that's really important, and I know that in my own work and my own personal work that I've like limited my own news intake to the end of the day 30 minutes one channel done and done like because it's just too overwhelming we've been talking a lot about you know kids and distant learn distance learning and where we are with that right now during the pandemic i think it's really important for us to talk about the role of teachers teachers kind of paying attention to maybe signs and symptoms that you know maybe kids are not doing as well as they were before that there possibly is some social emotional kind of issues going on maybe in the home. Dr. Lindsay, what do you think that we can do to kind of work with the teachers and the parents together on this? That's the number one challenge that teachers, you know, sort of uh, face and and that they actually talk about. I mean, there's research on this that um, one of the major reasons why new teachers do not stay in the profession longer than two or three years is because of their perception or feeling that they are not able to address um, their um, their students' uh, emotional and behavioral health needs, right? So let's, let's be clear about that. Now you overlay that with COVID-19, and I think that the extra sort of, you know, responsibility then is there for the teacher and the caregivers and parents to communicate with each other around how the, ch- the the child is faring in terms of their abilities to learn that might be related to their emotional and um, behavioral health. Um, so I think that, you know, the line of communication should be 
uh, broached on both parts, right? The caregiver and the teacher's side. I wouldn't, you know, sort of put all the responsibility or burden on the teacher to be able to sort of express when a child may be challenged with something. You know, I think the parents got to meet the che- the teachers halfway. Um, and then, you know, as much as we can uh, help both parents and teachers understand, you know, the behaviors, the manifestations of them, and then what we can do about them is really important. Um, and so then I, I step back from all of that and say that um, the school systems, you know, administrators have an extra sort of set of responsibilities around ensuring that um, their teachers are prepared um, and that they are able to successfully communicate with parents and, and uh, you know, and, and the mental health community. Uh, as well. We're all providers, right? The three of us. How can we help in this uh, quest to ensure that parents understand um, you know, are there opportunities for us to do, you know, things like this conversation, right, or other kinds of webinars or virtual experiences that help parents understand and and are able help them to be able to cope with any challenges that their ch- that their children are experiencing. So, long story short, I think it's important for us to meet each other halfway and work collectively on uh, how best to meet our children's needs. You know, my mind just was like every PD and every PTA that I could get my hands on to have like a conversation, because I think that in the conversation between teachers and parents, one of the things that has always been my experience is how how parents can, how teachers can talk to parents so parents feel empowered and know that they have, that they have the tools and that they're, they've done a good job and that yes, your, your child has experienced all these feelings, but we're going to work together and really help your kid and be a team. And like, just to be able to, um, to have conversations with both, both the teachers and the parents and bridge that gap would be such a, such a relief. And then I was also like, I went, my mind goes like a hundred miles an hour, Dr. Lindsay. So I was like, I had new programs I was putting into place and Anisha's is going to be like, Oh no, I have to do something else. <laughs> yeah, but. no, I mean, I think it's really important for, for our community, the community of providers to, to think about ways that we can creatively and uniquely meet the needs of, of, of parents and, and, and the broader community of those who are connected to kids. Yeah, because, uh, you know, this is a moment where all hands need to be on deck. Yeah, yeah. All hands on deck for sure. I know that we don't have you for much longer, but we don't want you to leave us without having what's going to be famous one day. Our ending is going to be famous. So at the end of every episode, Anisha closes it out with two questions. I never know what they are and you have to answer them. So. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Really quickly. How have you been kind today, Dr. Lindsay? <laughs> I reviewed uh, at the very last minute for a person. I sort of stopped what I was doing and reviewed a, an op-ed that uh, she was uh, submitting for a publication. And um, I think it's, it's great. And so I carved out time to be able to do that. And I'm glad I did because I learned a lot. Look at that. Okay. And you did that and? before, uh, and you got up and had breakfast and had the whole thing. <laughs> I'm impressed. Yeah, it was like it was literally the first thing I did when I woke up this morning. Ooh, 
Okay. It's one of those emails, you know, I got an email like and a text message at like three thirty, <laughs> four o'clock this morning. And you're like, okay, I, I got it. I yeah. have to pay attention to this. That was that is kind. That is kind. Very kind. Yes. And then the fun question. What is your favorite 90s jam? What is your favorite 90s song? Oh <laughs> goodness. Or artist. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> She's got a whole decade she threw in front of you. There were some changes from the beginning to the end. The music changed it just a little bit, just a little shift. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. uh, 90s. I'm trying to think what was going on in the 90s. You can go rap, R&B, whatever genre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, I really liked, um, in the <laughs> 90s, I really liked D'Angelo. There it is. There it is. Okay. Brown Sugar. That first, that first. Uh, that first, uh, his first project was uh, as a classic. So, yeah. Okay. Thank you, so <laughs> Thank you Dr. Lindsay. And you're gonna, you're gonna be thinking about D'Angelo for the rest of the day. This is why we leave you with these songs, yeah, those questions, true, because like it takes you back yeah. a little nostalgia. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, and uh, I think we're gonna have you back again because we've only scratched the surface. So um, oh, that would be amazing. I'd love to come back and look forward to it. I can't wait. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you um, so much. And right. uh, we look forward to seeing you again. Okay. All thank right. You. So, All right. Thank you. And Anisha, um, stay safe. Stay safe and keep washing, your, washing hands. your hands. We're never going to get it. <laughs> we're never going to say it. We're never going to say it at the right time. Okay. Thank All you right. so much. We're going to stop here. We'll Thanks, see you all bye. next week. Thank you for listening to the Be Real podcast. Stay connected to us and subscribe to Be Real wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you are feeling it, how about a five-star review? If our conversation sparked a question, join us in the Be Real podcast Facebook group. We hope that you have walked away with some new insights, curiosities, and ideas to better help you on your journey to mental wellness and overall well-being. I encourage you to go to BeWellPsychotherapy.com and check out our services and programs. Again, that's BeWellPsychotherapy.com. Okay, we have to stop here, but I'll see you next week.